appreciate the singing and the songs. You know, a lot of these songs are new, and they're not just the old hymns that we know, which are so great. So great. But we're trying to introduce some other songs and some worship and some praise songs. And I can't tell you how many times I'll get up in the morning and I'll be singing a song that we sang. I asked Alice the other day, I said, what are you singing? <laughs> you know, because she sings. But uh, at any rate, good to be in God's house. Amen? All right. Let's pray together uh, at the outset here that God would have his will and way in our hearts and lives. And as I pray, you need to pray, folks. You need to commune with God. God's got a party line. It's pretty neat. I mean, how many remember the old party lines? And you had a certain ring, and if it rang a certain way, and oh, that's for my neighbor. Well, God has the ability to speak to us all. And he wants to so desperately this morning. Let's pray. God, we recognize, we confess that you are here today. That in itself is humbling. Father, as we go through the second part of this message today on the fear of the Lord, may we truly learn what it is to fear the Lord, that we might worship you and praise you, that we might live as though where you are with us every day, every moment. God, I pray for each and every one here. I know that there are all sorts of hurts, aches, and pains, difficulties, troubles, but God, we come to you this morning because you are the God of answers, and you're the God that meets needs. So, Father, meet the needs in our hearts and lives. We pray today as we honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your Bibles and open to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, you will read as our text. 2 Timothy 2.26. Again, this is fearing the Lord. We started fearing the Lord last week, and this is part two. Remember, we started this study. The study has to do with addictions. But remember when I said, when I say the word addiction, I also am meaning and saying the word idolatry. It's whatever is coming between you and God. Whatever comes between you and your God. You say, well, I don't have an addiction, but you have an idol, so you have an addiction. And we need to be able to, again, to recognize that. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 2.26, and that they may recover or come to their senses themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Well, you say, I'm saved. I know Jesus Christ is my personal Savior. And yet sometimes we allow ourselves to be held captive by the devil. I want to read you this phrase. It'll come up later again in this message. And look at me and listen as I say this. Whatever wins our affection will control our lives. Whatever wins my affection is going to control my life. That might be drink, that might be drugs, that might be watching TV, that might be eating, that, you know, fill in the blank. But mark it down. Whatever wins our affection will control our lives. Now, as we're going through this, this is kind of like a, uh, a teaching time because what I said last week applies again here today. We want to first learn to make application in our own lives. Amen? We want to draw close to the Lord. We want to learn how to fear the Lord. But then we want to turn around and be able to say, okay, God, I've got this. Now, you'll have to be like my father-in-law and like me 
who will say, uh, if I can just learn what I know. Because so many times we forget. And we have to remind ourselves. I mean, that's why we have God's word. Amen? So we can go to it and remind us of those things that we should be doing and should be about. But we're going to use this after we learn it and take it and use it with other people and use it with other people. We don't have 20 pastors here, but we do have 50, 60 people here on a given Sunday. And each of us has the ability to minister one to another. There can be a number of reasons, I'm going to get into this, for lack of assurance about forgiving, forgiving grace. Number one, perhaps the person has never really professed faith in Christ. He or she may know the facts and be able to say the facts that are true, but they've never trusted Christ as their Savior. They've never trusted in his righteousness. The book of Romans talks about how the salvation was even in their mouth. I mean, it was right there. And all you have to do is take a bite of it. It's right there. John Murray said this, Faith is knowledge passing in conviction into conviction, and it is conviction passing into confidence. So knowledge of forgiveness must be ground into a personal trust of Christ and in Christ. That's why a lot of people have trouble with, am I saved, am I not saved? Am I saved, am I not saved? I need to trust in his ability, Ricky, to forgive me. To forgive me. Number two, perhaps the person thinks he's a good person. Who occasionally does bad things. I'm not so bad. You know, I'm not so bad. Have you ever heard that? I'm not so bad. I'm a pretty good guy. I'm not as bad as old Joe over there. And as a good person, given enough time, if we don't watch, we think that we can pay God back for our sins. And, but if his sin is truly a crime against God, then guess what? It's only God that can pardon and cleanse you from that sin. Or, number three, perhaps the person just can't believe that they can be so loved. I just can't understand, I cannot fathom that God would love me, would love me so much. Let me know the story of Hosea and Gomer. Oh, I'll have to preach a message on that one day. Hosea and Gomer, Hosea, the, uh, uh, the prophet, and Gomer the harlot, and he married her. And it's a story of love, a dramatic illustration in Scripture. And in it, God reveals himself as the one who is moved by his love for the people. You see, I didn't move God. God moved. God moved. You love God this morning? Praise God. He moved to you. He moved to you. He's not a distant God who observes his people and who desires to turn away from his wrath. Sometimes we can't believe that God can do this. When there's sin in our life, the treatment is this. The treatment is this, is to confess sin. Confess sin. Sometimes you might think, well, this person is dealing with this issue and you're telling them to confess sin. It's like you're trying to hit them over the head. No, that's, that's where they need to go. Because the sin is against God. It's against God. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
and by saying that sins cannot be forgiven are saying, Lord, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. But this individual must repent and say, I believe. Well, number four, perhaps the person is mad at himself for repeating the same sin over and over. Is this hitting home with anybody? Repeating the same sin over and over. This is actually a veiled form of pride that assumes he or she is capable of doing good in their own power. And they are minimizing the spiritual inability apart from God's grace. To counter this, we need to learn to praise God. We had a chance this morning to praise Him in song and worship Him in song. You know, the songs that we read, unless they're taken directly from Scripture, are not inspired, but I think they're probably very much influenced by God's Holy Spirit. But we have a chance to worship God and just lose ourselves into that time and that moment. I'm not saying going off into a trance, but I'm saying being so aware that God is here, that we worship Him. Five, perhaps the person is establishing his or her own standards for righteousness. They have passed God's requirements because of Christ, but they've not passed their own. Yeah, God's got his standard, but I got my standard. Who do we think we are? Who do we think we are? It's like saying, I'm above God. I'm above God. Number six, perhaps the person is saying that he regrets the consequences of his or her behavior for himself. It seems his world is against him, and, and he wishes that it was not. In this case, he or she should see that there's a difference between consequences and forgiveness. In God's divine courtroom, if we turn to Christ, we are forgiven, and the joy of forgiveness before this divine judge can outweigh the pain of social vocational or physical consequences of the addiction. Hey, you live an addicted life. And the things I just mentioned this morning and other things, if that controls you, over time that will have an effect on your life and there will be consequences for it. Let's try to have a conversation here. Perhaps you have a Christian friend here and he's talking with another uh, believer and his name is Jim. And the Christian friend says, Jim, could you explain to me what you mean when you say you really feel bad about what happened? Can you explain to me what you mean? Jim goes, well, it's just that my family has gone through a lot. And sometimes I feel like I have to face that every day. Think about that. And I know my wife doesn't trust me anymore. Christian friend says, well, you're right. It certainly has been difficult for you. In fact, it might look like sobriety in this case. Has meant facing all sorts of problems. 
that you didn't have to face before when you were inebriated. Apart from faith, it might seem easier to go back to alcohol. Sometimes we get there. Jim said, I, I, I thought of that. I feel like I have this black cloud over me ever since, ever since I've been sober. Christian friend says to Jim, hmm. See, now here's perspective. He goes, hmm. I wonder if we are witnessing the spiritual battle. See, there's a battle going on. Satan saying that God's not going, or Satan saying, God can't really forgive you. Yes, he can. Or perhaps the person is spiritually inexperienced and he, he needs to practice looking away from himself and looking to Jesus. Oh, we do this all the time. We look inward, we look inward, and we don't look to him. Perhaps the person doesn't really believe that God is satisfied by what Christ did on the cross. Scripture is clear, though, in so many places. The evidence of God's satisfaction is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Praise God. Jesus' bodily resurrection was the Father's signal that the penalty of sin had been fully paid. Nothing remained to be done. I mean, if a Baptist could ever say amen, there's a place to say amen. And now the risen Lord is our constant advocate before the Father. Hebrews 7.25 says this, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever loveth to make intercession for them. Jesus ever loveth to make intercession for me. Or perhaps there are times when individuals seem immune to biblical exhortation, preaching, and teaching, and encouragement. In such cases, it's possible that they do not want to believe that they are forgiven. They may know that there is forgiveness in Jesus, but they prefer guilt. Now listen, why? Because guilt has more of a payoff than we might think. For example, the religious-sounding I'm too bad to be forgiven might be a veiled attempt to leave the door open for a future drug use. Making preparation, making preparation, planning for my next sin. There are other variations as well. For example, if we believe we are not fully forgiven, we can remain angry with others. If I haven't been treated with grace, then I don't have to forgive others. Oh, really? And if they have a right to be angry with others, they can also justify punish others by drinking at them. You ever consider that? Another deceptive possibility is that my sins are so bad, I should punish myself. And what's the best way to do that? Continuing in your sin. Continuing in your sin. These are ploys that sound religious on the outside, but they're actually signs of unbelief. And they are pride and it's lust. In essence, when we do that, we're calling God a liar. 
God says, I am forgiven as I turn to Christ in faith, but I don't believe it's true. They pride in that they expose the belief that we can do something that will help God deal with my sin. Can't do that. Regardless of the underlying motives, whenever people put their faith in Christ, yet struggle with believing that they are forgiven, it's a serious issue. It must remain on their agenda until it's resolved with faith. So we need to learn to fear the Lord. Learn to fear the Lord. Now I need to say this. The fear of the Lord does not suddenly appear. I mean, if you've been walking in your sin and you're here this morning, you're going to say, you say, I'm going to fear the Lord. This doesn't happen immediately. It's a process. Even though it's a gift from the Father, it's typically learned through the normal means that God has established for his people. One way we learn the fear of the Lord is simply by remembering. By remembering. Remember what God says about himself and about us. One of the recurring sins of God's people is that we forget. How can I remember all these things? Here it is. Right here, God's Word. It's in God's Word. It refresh my memory. My father-in-law is 95. March 1st, he'll be 96. If you were to come and observe him through the morning, you'd see me just breakfast, watch a little bit of the weather, memorize it, and then open his Bible. And he'll be reading his Bible. And then you'll watch and he'll bow his head in prayer for at least an hour and a half. Every day. Every day. He's remembering. He's remembering. Even though we have scripture available to us every day and we have reminders, we come together in our corporate worship here, things like the Lord's Supper, we forget who God is, and what he has done. We forget that the king and the father, the one who is over all the nation, has called us out of bondage to be his children and to honor his name. And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Forgetting now isn't because I have a faulty memory, although my memory is not what it used to be. I remember I was talking to somebody one day, and uh, I said, if memory serves me, and I pause and I go, well, it could happen, <laughs> you know. But we forget because we've not been looking in the right places. We've been looking elsewhere. We've been looking at our idol. We've been looking at our addiction. We've been looking at whatever it is that has come between us and God. How you do it? The means of reading and meditating on Scripture. It's meeting with believers. And not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as a matter of some is, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. There's a reason we come together. There, there is a reason that I'm trying to have activities on Sunday evenings from time to time within this body. 
that we might learn to fellowship one another with one another. We need to learn to come together as believers and worship God. Why? We're on God's team. We should have the same goal. And we need to remember. We need to remember. Remembering comes easier when we're aware that our deepest problem is our struggle with sin. Have you ever considered praying the Lord's Prayer every day? I think we have to watch here. We get, look, we get a little sensitive, kind of like when we talk about gifts and then the charismatic movement. Oh, I don't want to be considered a charismatic. And, but with Catholics, what do you hear them pray so often? The Lord's Prayer. Take your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. You get that? We're going to read it aloud together. Okay? Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. The Bible says, After this manner, say it with me, After this manner, therefore pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. In this small prayer, we're taught the basics of human life. We're taught that what? God is my Father. And we want his name to be exalted and revered in our lives. But not only in our lives, but throughout the whole world. We want his rule to extend deeply in our hearts and through the world. We, we ask for daily provisions, don't we? We confess our sins and acknowledge that we have forgiven those who sinned against us. I pray that we have. I pray that we have. We pray that God would deliver us from Satan's strategies. So let's try to talk about some definitions of the Lord. We want to try to get an idea of, about what definitions of the fear of the Lord is. And just understand and know that there's no one definition for the fear of the Lord. But there are certain elements that should appear in that definition or description. Number one, the fear of the Lord is a son or daughter's response to the divine Father's holiness. It is a biblical understanding of the fear of the Lord, and it must be rooted in our growing knowledge that God is holy. God is holy. We have no idea. We have no idea of the holiness of God. I don't have the words. I don't know if there's enough words in the dictionary. This means that his attributes cannot be understood by comparing them to praiseworthy characteristics or even the best of people. I can't, you don't even compare. You know? If I'd be like watching a, a little 12 year old out here playing Little League Baseball, boy, they're a good ball player. 
but they don't match up against Mike Trout. There's no comparison. No comparison. God's love, his power, his beauty, his judgment, his compassion. Oh, listen here, his anger and his mercy. Guess what? They are all holy. I got to tell you something. My anger most of the time is not anywhere near holy. But God's anger is. And they're different from the attributes that we see in people. How about this? The fear of the Lord is our total response to God. It's our total response to God, the fear of the Lord. It goes further than an intellectual understanding. Oh yeah, I fear the Lord. Listen to this. A biblical fear of the Lord is a response of my entire being. How I'm responding to God. How I'm responding to God. Oh, I love Him. I fear Him. When God teaches us to fear Him, He usually does it in a way that's astonishing. And the cross of Christ is the climax of this teaching. The cross of Christ. What's that? It was a supernatural event that liberated. It was a supernatural event, the cross of Christ was, that liberated the living and the dead. That was the final word about God's love and justice that he began in the eternal reign of Jesus Christ. Such an event does not simply interest us when you think about it. If you fear God, it doesn't just interest you. You don't just say, oh, God, uh, Jesus died on the cross. Who's Jesus Christ? Oh, he died on the cross. Uh, it's a historic fact. It doesn't just interest me. What does it do? It moves me. It moves me. And for that reason, there's an emotional dimension to the fear of the Lord. How about this? The fear of the Lord expresses itself and it's responsive. The fear of the Lord expresses itself this way. It is responsive, it's reverential, and it's joyful in action. You know, if you can't come in here on a Sunday morning or Sunday night and sing praises to God with a smile on your face and joy in your heart, in spite of everything that's falling down around you, there's something wrong. Here's the reliable principle of human conduct. I'm going to repeat it again. Whatever wins our affections will control our lives. Whatever it is, my addiction, my idolatrous nature, whatever it is that comes between me and God, that's going to control my life. Let me give, give you an example here. You love your spouse, right? So what do you do? It'll be expressed in the way you feel and the way you live. If you really love your spouse, you're going to treat her a certain way. You're going to treat him a certain way. You love your work. Oh, I love what I do. So what do you do? You put in extra hours. You work a long time. Even if it means sacrificing time with your family, sometimes sacrificing your health. Or how about this? You love pornography. So you'll find time and you'll find money to indulge your desires. 
Addicts are moved in action by their beloved. What is it you love? What is it you love? Sometimes I might say to you, you loving God? You loving God? The only way out of such a relationship is to be moved even more by someone who is much more beautiful and is our legitimate lover. Who is that? That's God Almighty. For example, Prophet Isaiah was given a ministry which his love for personal safety would be tested. And it comes down to all this, and, and it says in Isaiah 6, 8, Isaiah quickly said, Here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. What is it? He feared the Lord. He responded. He responded. The fear of the Lord moved him. It caused him to do something. See, if, if, you, if you really fear the Lord, it's going to cause you to be a witness and testimony. It's going to cause you to live a certain way. As we see throughout the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord animates. What's animates mean? It means to bring to life. Okay, so as we see throughout the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord brings to life every action of our lives. Whether it's doing the dishes, you know, you're singing, oh, how I love Jesus, or you're greeting someone warmly, or, or saying no to once sins that you love, sins that you once loved. The fear of the Lord then is reverence that obeys. It obeys. Wow, reverence obeys is accurate, but it doesn't quite force us to consider the majesty of God. Instead, it draws our attentions to our own obedience. A fuller way to define the fear of the Lord is this. The fear of the Lord is knowing that I live, I'm going to give you some Latin here, quorum Dio, which simply means this, before the sight of God. Now get a hold of this. As you live your life, you're living it before Jesus. He's right there. He's right there. He's right there. It is knowing that the Holy God sees every aspect of my life. The result is that we live knowing that we are seen. We live publicly and follow Christ in joyful and reverential obedience. He sees us all the time. Oh, guess what? Not just the actions, but he sees what's going on here. He sees what's going on here. I think sometimes we play games. Oh, it didn't come out. didn't come out. Oh, God. God's right in front of you. He's there. God sees. It's pretty basic right there. God sees. The one who sits on the throne sees us. And he sees us individually. Our Heavenly Father always has us under a watchful eye. I'll tell you, whenever we got out as children and we were running around, there were four boys in my family, and there's a little bit of spread between our, some of our ages, but uh, I know that my mom and my dad always had us under their eye. They were watching us. Why? Because they loved us. They loved us. I know, hard to believe, but they did. They loved us. But when we have a tolerance for sin in our lives, we need to understand that it's due in part to our belief 
when we have sin in our life, it's due in part that some parts of my life are secret even from God. Wow, that's scary, George. This is the way addiction begins. We think that God is like an idol who takes a nap while we're secretly pursuing our lusts. Oh, this little, you know, just a, just a few moments here, and this won't, yeah, it's not a big deal. We think that he's like other people who only sees us when we come into their presence. I'm always in God's presence. There's no exception. Addictions have this lie at their very core. Consider this, how many people would freely indulge their addictions if they truly knew that they were living in the presence of the Holy One, the great I Am. I mean, I wouldn't pursue my addictions in front of my boss, right? And yet we do it in front of God. We need to learn to fear the Lord. The practical theology, that's taking God's word and then living it. Okay, we talked a little bit about this. Simply practical theology, so what we do. Of all addiction says that God is present sometimes in absence at others. He's not. We typically indulge our sins without pangs. Pangs are sharp, painful emotion of conscience when we believe that no one sees no one sees. How can we know this? Notice what happens if someone actually catches us in our sin. What happens? Oh, there's embarrassment. Oh, there's shame. Oh, there's a lot of things, right? There's a sudden sense of guilt. What we've tried to keep in the dark has been exposed to the light. The reality is, is that you're never in private. You're never in private. God is ever present. Psalm 90 verse 8 says this, Thou hast set our iniquities before thee. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee. Our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. We are always seen and we are always in the presence of the Holy One. One of the great gifts God gives his people is a heart that is more and more like his own. His all-seeing gaze, vision, is, is, is sight of us, brings our heart into, to the open so that they can change, so they can be changed. The tragedy would be that if our divine Father left us to ourselves, oh my. We have, we are witness to what has happened in America when children are left to themselves. When we have homes that do not have fathers in them. When we have mothers that perhaps are trying to make a go or maybe living their own idolatrous, addictive life and children coming up on their own. Praise God that the Father does not leave me or us to ourselves. So if you've been exposed, consider yourself loved. 
And know that God is inviting you to learn the fear of the Lord. The presence of God to have his eyes looking upon you is a great blessing in Scripture. In Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, I'll read. He says, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his shine face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. So, application, practical theology, what do you do? What do you do? When you wake up in the morning, when you wake up in the morning, begin by meditating on the cross of Christ until you're thankful and humbled. We need to stop and think about that. We've heard the messages and to talk about the horrific beating he took and the pain that was suffered on the cross of Calvary and how that he could not breathe and he had to push himself up to breathe. And we remember that kind of as just a scene from a movie. But we don't drink it in and comprehend and consider that what that meant and why that was done. We need to plead for the knowledge of God and plead with boldness. Head bowed and eyes closed. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Can you imagine what it would be like if we really believed and lived like we believed that God was ever-present in my life, your life? It would protect us. It would bless us. We need to learn to study Psalm 139. I'm going to read you a couple of scriptures. It talks about, search me, O God. In verse 7, it says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into the heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, thou art there. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shine as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike unto thee. God is ever-present. He's ever-present. We're talking about the fear of the Lord. If you really fear the Lord this morning, it's going to cause you to go to Him. It's going to cause your life to change. It's going to cause that best Christian in the church to grow in his love and knowledge of God Almighty. It's going to change his, even his walk. Father, I pray that as we've taken a few moments here, that you will cause people to respond to your Holy Spirit as they should. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's stand together, heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around.